Father God, um, we just come before you again humbled that we get to open up your word uh, and see how a variety of your scriptures from Genesis to Revelation connect and open up the story of your plan uh, so we can get to know you better and trust and have faith in you more. God, we thank you for this opportunity tonight. And uh, God, we just ask that you would bless this time together. Uh, fill us up, fill this room with your spirit uh, and help us to get to know you. In Jesus' name, amen. So last week we went through Revelation 13. I was a little unsatisfied with the full explanation of Revelation 13. So I also wanted to attack some of the scriptures that I pointed to that relate to it, uh, that paint the picture, rather than just say, hey, you should also check out these scriptures. <laughs> so tonight, before we get into Revelation 14, we're going to sort of recap the 13th chapter, what's going on, and then see how related passages in the Old and New Testament can sort of fill in some of the blanks or complete the picture for us. So in Revelation 13, you get this picture of two characters uh, who are going to play a big role uh, during the tribulation period. Uh, you get a picture of what we tend to call the Antichrist, even though he's really only called the Antichrist once in scripture. That's the name that he's been given, um, probably due to the popularity of the Left Behind books. Um, but that's the name when I say Antichrist, I'm referring to the first beast. Uh, and then the second beast, we typically refer to him as the false prophet. And so we'll start with the second beast. The second beast you saw rising up out of the earth. Uh, and he had two horns like a lamb. So he appeared like a lamb, but he spoke the words of the dragon. And so he clearly is some sort of false religious figure. It could point to a false Messiah type, a false Christ type pointing to the first beast. His role is basically to lead some sort of religious idea that points directly to the Antichrist to be worshipped. And at some point during the tribulation, about the halfway point, there is a head injury incurred by the first beast, the Antichrist, and then the second beast, the false prophet, sets up an idol in the temple to the Antichrist or the first beast, and he points people to worship the idol of the Antichrist and gives it power to speak. And from that point forward, everyone is to receive a mark on their right back of their right hand or their forehead, called the mark of the beast. It's the mark, the name, or the number of his name, which is 666. And so his job is really to point everything back to the first beast. So that's the false prophet. And so to deal with him a little bit, I want to take us back to Matthew chapter 24. In some context, Matthew chapter 24, Jesus is going alone with his disciples. It's just him and his disciples, and they're heading up the Mount of Olives. So they're on the Mount of Olives, uh, and his disciples basically ask him, some questions. First, they point to the temple and they say, look at all this. Isn't it amazing? And Jesus basically says, uh, I'm going to tell you the truth. Will you look at all these things? And I say to you that not one stone shall be left upon another um, that shall not be thrown down. So basically, Jesus looks at the temple that they're in, that they're all happy about and thinking like, Jesus, you're the Messiah. So you're going to rule from the temple. Isn't this, isn't this beautiful? Herod's temple is amazing. It was built for you. You're going to rule from there. And he turns around and he looks at them and he says, I tell you the truth, not one stone will be left upon another as he's looking at the temple. And they're confused. They're like, wait, I don't understand. You're the Messiah. We expect you to rule from there. What's going on, Jesus? So they say, they really ask him, what does all this mean? What are you talking about? When are you coming? When are you going to do what we've expected you to do? And it sort of leads us through Jesus's answer about the end times, because he's saying, I will come back. And this is what Matthew 24 and 25 are all about. We're just going to go through 24 today, because there's a whole other set of stuff in Matthew 25 that we connected to back in chapter 4 of Revelation. So um, if you need a review, I would check that podcast. But 
Basically, here's what happens. I'm going to read through it. Uh, now, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when these things will be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age. So Jesus answers and says to them, take heed that no one deceives you for many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and will deceive many. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. All of these are the beginning of sorrows. So he starts out and he says, there's going to be a lot of things that happen. There's going to be people who claim to be me. There's going to be wars, rumors of wars, earthquakes, famines, pestilences. All that stuff is going to happen. Um, But don't worry, the end isn't yet. This is just a sign of what's to come. Um, But this means that you know you're getting close. And so then they will deliver you up to the tribulation and kill you. Now, this is just the word trouble. It's not necessarily referring to the tribulation period. It could be. um, But sometimes we confuse the time period of the tribulation with the word tribulation in the Bible, which just means trouble uh, and kill you. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will be offended, will betray one another and will hate one another. Um, then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. But he who endures until the end shall be saved. And the gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to the nations, and then the end will come. So there's sort of two schools of thought. This is leading to the end. These types of things are leading to the end, or Jesus is specifically talking about the tribulation, period. Um, I tend to take the latter view. So Jesus is talking about the tribulation, period, and he's saying there will be false prophets. They will deceive people. The spirit of lawlessness will abound. In Thessalonians or in 2 Thessalonians, Paul refers to the man of lawlessness, which is the Antichrist. So the spirit of lawlessness is on the earth. People will grow cold. They'll turn on each other. But the, the gospel of the kingdom will be preached through all of the world. And then the end will come. So this could be referring to the ministry of the two witnesses and the 144,000 during the tribulation period, where there is a great revival and a lot of people come to Christ. And then they also will unfortunately be hunted down and persecuted by the Antichrist. That's the picture we see here. Therefore, when you see, this is important, verse 15, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. So, This time period will exist. There will be deception. Many people will come to Jesus. This sounds like what we've read in Revelation. There will be two witnesses who preach the gospel throughout the earth. There will be 144,000. Tonight, when we get into chapter 14, you'll see an angel who's preaching the gospel all throughout the earth. Um, And then at about the halfway point, you see the abomination of desolation. And it's a warning to get out of Dodge, get out of Jerusalem, because the Antichrist is coming for you. And we sort of talked about this in Revelation already. He will fail at persecuting the Jews as they flee into the wilderness. And then he will take his energy out of anybody else who follows Christ because he can't seem to get into the wilderness where the Jews are. So he takes it on everybody else who has come to this great revival and starts killing those basically who don't take the mark of the beast. If you patch these pieces of scripture together. So therefore... You see the abomination of desolation standing in the holy place. So there must be a temple. There must be a holy place for this to be. Let him understand. So now he says, let him who is on the housetop not go down to take anything out of the house and let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days and pray that your flight may not be in the winter or on the Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation, which is the second three and a half years. This is where we get the term great tribulation and why we call it that. There will be great tribulation such as not has been since the beginning of the world until this time, nor ever shall be. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. 
but for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. So basically, this is a shorter period of time. It's only going to be three and a half years. And God is basically, his mercy is that this judgment and his wrath is poured out in a short period of time so that not everybody dies. Then, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there, do not believe For false Christs and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, even if possible, the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. Therefore, if they say to you, look, he's in the desert, or do not go out, or look, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe it. So Jesus is very much warning about these two guys, the the false prophet and the Antichrist, they will rise during this time. They will be deceitful. They will be deceptive. They will be impressive. Even in Revelation 13, it talks about the wonders and signs and how the false prophet is able to repeat some of the wonders that the two witnesses do and that the judgment of God, the fire from heaven and those types of things that come, he will have the power to sort of replicate these miracles and people will be in awe of this and think, this must be God or must be from God at least. So don't believe it. Jesus is very much talking about this time period and these people and saying, do not be deceived. It says, for as lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will be the coming of the Son of Man. For wherever the carcass is, there the eagles will be gathered together. Immediately after the tribulation, those days of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven, which you saw that in part of the judgments, right? So this is repeating some of the judgments in Revelation. And the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. Then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory, and he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the war four winds um, from one end of heaven to the other. And so that's where we're going to stop in Matthew 24. But ultimately, Jesus coming back is not going to be a secret. Uh, It's like lightning. He comes in the clouds in the sky. He's going to come down and he's going to touch his foot down on the Mount of Olives and people are going to see it. He's going to come in a cloud with lightning and it's going to be crazy. So it's not going to be something you miss. Um, It's not going to be shocking Well, it will be shocking, but it's not going to be a secret. It's not going to surprise anybody at this moment. They're going to know it's Jesus coming. So that's sort of the point. Um, But also this last part where it says, you know, he will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. There's a couple of different options to how you would look at that. Some people view this as the rapture taking place at the end of the tribulation period instead of before the tribulation period. Um, I don't really agree with that. I think if you're saying he's gathering together his elect, um, then he's, you're talking about the tribulation saints. We've already seen them in Revelation with their blood poured out and they're waiting to rise. They are waiting until the end of the tribulation period. They're waiting until Christ comes back to be gathered together. Uh, And you're going to see another piece of this as we get into Revelation 14 as well. Um, The other option is this, is that it also says from one end of heaven to the other. So if he is gathering his elect and it is the church, he's gathering them in heaven for him coming down. Um, I tend to think the first rather than the latter, but it doesn't really matter. (laughs) It's all in the future. We'll find out when it goes down. Um, But I, it is very hard for me to take a position um, that the tribulation will happen at the end because of the evidence in Revelation chapter 4 and what we talked about during that session and how it really points to the Jewish marriage um, and how the bride is not, Paul tells us that we're not appointed to wrath uh, and the man of lawlessness can't be revealed until the Holy Spirit is gone. So all of those things point to the church being gone. So who are the elect? Probably the tribulation saints and the Jews that have accepted Christ during this time of turmoil on the earth. Uh, and they are gathered together at the end when Jesus comes back. Now, the next thing I want to point to is, well, let's go to the first beast. The first beast comes up out of the sea, and he has seven heads, ten horns, um, crowns on all of the horns, and one of the heads has a wound, and then it's revived, 
which is the head wound of the Antichrist. Um, the ten horns represent governmental power or some sort of power over the earth. Um, it's likely that it represents ten different governors or presidents or some sort of position of power under the Antichrist himself. Um, we talked about the seven heads last week, so I'm not going to rehash all of that. But the vision that Daniel has matches the vision in Revelation. It talks about the, the beast is also seems to have four different parts to him. He has ten horns, he has the feet of a bear, he has the body of a leopard, the mouth of a lion, which are the same four beasts represented in chapter 7 of Daniel, which we sort of went through pretty significantly a couple of weeks ago. Um, so I don't want to overdo that. We combine that with Daniel chapter 2, which again, we talked about the statue and the four different metals, and then at the bottom, his feet, the, the statue that Nebuchadnezzar had a dream of, you know, the head of gold, the chest and arms of silver, the abdomen and thighs of bronze, and the legs of iron, representing four different world powers. Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. But then at the end of his dream, he also saw feet that were made of iron and mixed with ceramic clay, and the toes were partly iron and partly clay. Now, the interesting thing is there are ten horns in the vision in Daniel 7. There's ten horns in Revelation 13 on the first beast, and at the end of Daniel's vision, or Nebuchadnezzar's vision that Daniel interprets in Daniel chapter 2, there's ten toes mixed with iron and clay. So we know that this, all of these three things are compatible. What we didn't get to uh, last, actually the last two weeks that I've been dying to get to is the end of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. He sees these feet and toes mixed with clay, and then all of a sudden there's a rock, which we didn't talk about. There's a rock that comes and smashes the feet of this statue, and the whole statue comes crumbling down. This is Daniel's interpretation of that portion of the dream because this all is connected to the first beast. So Daniel chapter 2, verses 41 through 45. It says, Whereas you saw the feet and toes partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, the kingdom shall be divided, yet the strength of the iron shall be in it. And just as you saw the iron mixed with ceramic clay, and as the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly fragile. As you saw the iron mixed with ceramic clay, they will mingle with the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another, just as iron does not mix with clay. So this portion of the vision gives a lot of commentators to believe that it's some sort of democratic union. Um, think like the Mediterranean Union or the European Union, where they are independently governed by themselves, but then there's like a government over top of the independent countries that govern over top of it, so there's some sort of loose bind, but when they come together and they work as one, they are strong as iron, even though their bond is weak like clay. This is sort of what the commentators think. Now, in the days of those kings, this is very important, because this is my argument against, one of my arguments against the preterist view. We discussed some of them last week, and the preterist view means that they think that all of these prophecies in Daniel and Revelation, or most of them, took place in 70 AD. This is the problem. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. And as much as you saw the stone was cut out of the mountains without hands, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, and the silver, and the gold. The great God has made known to the king what will come to pass after this king. This dream is certain, and its interpretation is sure. So Daniel is saying, in the days of those kings, when there is a kingdom that looks very much like the beast in Revelation 13, 
or the feet and toes of Daniel chapter 2, or the ten horns in Daniel 7 with the little horn that comes up speaking blasphemous and pompous things. In those days, in the days of those kings, God will set up a kingdom that cannot be destroyed. So this looks like the return of Jesus. He comes and he destroys men's earthly kingdoms and he sets up his millennial kingdom. Well, that hasn't happened. (laughs) That clearly didn't happen in 70 AD. Um, The argument against this, just so you know, because while I think I'm right, I want to make sure you have all the information. The argument against this is that the kingdom that God has set up is the church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. This is the the post-millennial view. It's connected to the preterist view. The, the idea is this, is Jesus said there was a parable, the parable of the mustard seed. You know, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. It's very small, but then it grows and overtakes everything. So the idea is that these things happen in 70 AD, and at this point, the church has been set up. The church will overcome the world and overtake the world. It will never fail The gates of hell cannot prevail against it. And when they overtake the world and this great revival comes uh, and it is ready because the church has basically engulfed the whole world and the message of Jesus is there, then Jesus will return and be our king. Um, Now, I have some issues with this view. Mainly, a lot of the stuff we talked about last week, the book of Revelation was written in 95 A.D., So claiming to be prophecy for things that happened 15 years, well, 25 years earlier just doesn't make sense. Um, But also this, the church did consume the world in the Middle Ages. The church was the strength and power. So I could see how you would hold this view if you lived before the Dark Ages and in the Dark Ages. But since then, the world has spiraled out of control and become more and more secular. And uh, the church is not winning. Now, the church exists. um, But if the church exists, how could the man of lawlessness ever have been revealed if the Holy Spirit needs to be taken out of, if the restrainer, which I believe is the Holy Spirit, because it talks about, Paul talks about the restrainer like a person. It sounds like the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit hasn't been taken away because the church hasn't been removed. Who was the Antichrist? None of this makes sense to me. And so I think clearly it makes more sense to look at this in a chronological sense in that when the days of those kings come along and the feet and the toes and the ten horns, whatever this government setup is that's being ran by the Antichrist and the false prophet is pointing to the Antichrist as God, like it says, because those things haven't happened. So until that happens, Scripture hasn't been fulfilled. So it must be future to me. When those things happen, then Jesus will return and destroy the governments of the world. And we'll see a piece of this today. Now, I did want to talk a little bit, just one verse in Daniel 9 that describes a little bit about this. Well, two verses, Daniel 9, 26, and 27. Um, So, 26, um, and after 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself and the people of the princes to come. Now, we talked about that already. The 69 seven-year periods that lead directly to Christ entering Jerusalem. But what about this next part? And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood until the end of the war. Desolations are determined. Well, that sounds to me a little bit like the destruction of the temple, which happened in 70 AD. And if that's what that's talking about, well, then the next verse is then. So there's a pause between 26 and Jesus coming the first time. And then there's the stuff that happens. It looks like the temple is going to get destroyed. Jesus points to that in Matthew 24. And then it says, then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall be one who makes desolate 
even until the consummation, which is determined and is poured out on the desolate. So if this is after the destruction of the temple, he comes, he makes a seven-year, this is the man of sin, makes a seven-year covenant with many, and then sets up the abomination of desolation. Well, then the abomination of desolation is not the destruction of the temple. It's something that happens after. But there must be another temple. (laughs) So this points to the future. And we get a better description of this in Daniel 12. So I'm hoping, I'm going to go through this quickly, and then we'll get to Revelation 14. Um, But Daniel 12, at that time, Michael shall stand up, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people. This is talking to the Israelites. There shall be a time of trouble, such as never was since a nation, even to that time, and at that time your people shall be delivered. Everyone who is found written in the book. So this is talking about every name that's found written in the book of life. He's saying trouble that like you've never seen before. That sounds like Jesus' words in Matthew 24. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. So at the end of the tribulation, there will be this great resurrection. Some people will go on to eternal life. Some go on to everlasting judgment. These who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. Sometimes people think like, oh, we're in the information age. Knowledge has increased. This is what he's talking about. It's not what he's talking about. He's saying, seal up the book of this prophecy. This will not make sense until we get close enough to the end for it to make sense. And then knowledge and understanding of prophecy will click. And so as you see things like Israel coming back into existence and fulfilling prophecies in Isaiah and Ezekiel 37 and 36, um, now things are starting to click and make sense. So now prophecy and an increase in knowledge and prophecy should be happening. I will say this, though. Um, there are some who think that this idea of like a pre-tribulation rapture and a futurist view of Revelation is a new idea. Um, they attribute it to a man named James Darby, who was in, I think, the 18th or 19th century. Um, great theologian, wrote commentary on basically the whole Bible. Um, and they attributed this idea to him. That's not true. He was actually referring back to one of the church fathers from the 2nd century, right after the disciples, the second year 100, moving on to Irenaeus, the church father. In Irenaeus's book of writings, in book five, he writes about the idea of a pre-tribulation rapture. And so this, this is not a new idea. Um, so don't let that fog your mind, because that is an argument that is often used against this view or this interpretation of Revelation. It's not new. It happened with it, earliest writings about it are in the second century, right I mean, this was written in 95 AD. The second century started in 100 AD. And Irenaeus wrote about this. So, not really a brand new idea. But you, Daniel, shut up the words of this prophecy, and then at the end, knowledge will increase. Then I, Daniel, looked, and there stood two others, one on the riverbank and the other on the riverbank, on that riverbank. And one said to him, clothed in linen, who was above the waters, of the river, how long shall the fulfillment of these wonders be? Then I heard the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the river when he held up his right hand and his left hand toward heaven and swore by him who lives forever. Then it shall be a time, times, and half a time. So there will be three and a, the three and a half years in, in this tribulation period, the second half of it, time, times, and half a time. Uh, And when the power of the holy people has been completely shattered, all these things shall be finished. So there will be a seventh week, a seven-year period, the second half of it, three and a half years. And at the end of that three and a half years will be the end of these things, the return of Christ, basically. Although I heard and I did not understand, my Lord said, what shall be the end of these things? And he said, go your way, Daniel, for the words are closed up and sealed till the time of the end. Many shall be purified, made white and refined, but the wicked shall do wickedly, and none of the wicked shall understand, but the wise shall understand. And from the time of that day 
from the time and from the time that the daily sacrifice is taken away and the abomination of desolation is set up there shall be 1290 days or essentially three and a half years so the second half of the tribulation blessed is he who waits and comes the 1335 days um, but you go your way till the end for you shall rest and rise to your inheritance and at the end of the days. So basically, there's 1,290 days, the end comes, Jesus returns, um, and then there will be a period of setting up his kingdom that takes you to 1,335 days. So 40, 45 days um, for setting up his kingdom. That caps up and I hope clears up the picture of Revelation 13, who the beast is, what the timing looks like, um, and how Daniel several passages in Daniel, Revelation 13, and Matthew 24 kind of all come together to create a picture. And with that, we have enough time, I think, we can get through Revelation 14, but I'm going to go really fast. Um, so then, I looked, and behold, a lamb is standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his father's name written on their foreheads. All right, so... I guess before I go further, let me kind of paint this picture here. Revelation 12 through 14 is a view from heaven. So we're seeing large, big pieces in chunks of history and sort of a heaven angle on it. So Revelation 12 is sort of a total history, talking about the dragon, Lucifer's battle against God, how it ultimately ends during the tribulation period. He gets kicked out of heaven, and then he knows he has a little bit of time left. Revelation 13 talks about characters, the two beasts. Now, Revelation 14 is looking at the end, like the end of the tribulation period. And so Jesus is there standing on Mount Zion because he's returned. And with him are the 144,000. Maybe this is a picture of Jesus gathering his elect from the four winds, potentially. All right. Like Matthew 24 said. Now they are sealed with the Father's name. He said, I heard a voice from heaven, like the voice of many waters, like the voice of thunder, and I heard the sound of harpists playing their harps. They sang as if it were new as a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who were redeemed from the earth. There's a couple of different ideas. This is either... The 144,000 are sealed through the first half of the tribulation and not the second half, and maybe they're martyred. And now they're standing in heaven with the, the 24 elders and Jesus on Mount Zion in heaven. There is an idea that that's a, there is a temple in heaven. There potentially is a Mount Zion in heaven. This is a heavenly picture. The other idea is that this is the end of the tribulation period. The, the church has come down with Christ, and now the 24 elders are there. I don't really have an inkling as to which interpretation I go towards. But just so you know, basically it could be future. It could be something happening in heaven. I don't think that the 144,000 sealed will be martyred during the tribulation period. I don't. Um, there are some commentators who think that, so I can't prove it. But I just, the, my reading, it doesn't seem like that's the case. So I think probably more than likely this is the end of the tribulation. The church has returned and they're standing with Jesus on Mount Zion. But it really could be either. Um, they sang as if it were a new song um, before the living creatures and the elders and 144,000 who were redeemed from the earth. These are the ones who were not defiled with women, for they were virgins. Um, these are the ones who followed the Lamb wherever he goes. These were redeemed from among men, being the first fruits to God and to the Lamb. And in their mouth, no, there was found no deceit, for they are without fault before the throne of God. So basically, the, this is the description of the 144,000. These people were so devoted to God once they were sealed by him during the tribulation period that they were only focused on heaven. They did not care about earthly pleasures. They didn't seek marriage or women. They didn't seek the pleasures of the earth or money. They were simply focused on God. And because they're the first fruits, it seems like they're the first group of people to get saved during the tribulation period. They're the first fruits. And out of the first fruits come the harvest. 
So they're the first people to get saved, and through their ministry, the harvest of the rest of those who become saved through the tribulation period is what he's saying there. Now the next section gets crazy. So then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made the heaven and the earth, the sea and the springs of water. So not only is there the ministry of the two witnesses, not only is there the ministry of the 144,000, there's an angel proclaiming the gospel throughout the earth. Uh, and his message is, get saved because God's judgment is coming. It's very different from the gospel message of today. Um, this is the tribulation period. There's not a lot of time left to mess around. And so that's sort of his idea. Fear God because judgment is coming. This stuff that you're seeing going on, the seals being opened, is real. God's judgment is on his way. And when Jesus comes back, there is judgment. So that's his message. Now there's another angel who followed saying, Babylon is fallen, that great city, because she has made all the nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. So the other second angel, first angel is, here's the gospel, get saved, come to Jesus, because God's wrath is near. The second angel is proclaiming God's victory over Babylon. Now Babylon, if you don't know, the city that's named most in the Bible, that is the heaviest focus in the Bible, is Jerusalem. The second most named city is Babylon. And it starts in Genesis 10 and 11. In Genesis 10, you get introduced to a descendant uh, of one of Noah's children named Nimrod. And Nimrod is a great warrior. And he gathers forces together. And then you see in chapter 11, ultimately Nimrod's glory, what he does. I'm going to read a little piece of that today. So this is Chapter, Genesis chapter 11, verse 4. This is basically Nimrod's victory. Now, after the flood, God had told people to disperse and be fruitful and you know fulfill the earth, right? Instead, this is what happened. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the earth. So Nimrod this great warrior, gathers together the people. He becomes a great leader. He's the first version of what the Antichrist will look like in the end. He gathers the whole world together under his control. They're speaking one language. They're communicating together. They have this one world idea. And they all stand together and defy God's plan. And they build for themselves a monument. This kind of looks like to me like the abomination of desolation, a monument that points to the Antichrist. Well, Nimrod has everybody build together basically a ziggurat, a step pyramid that goes as high as they can, they can take it as a monument to his defiance of God and his victory over the earth. So this is, this is the, they named, God names the Tower Babel. Why? Because it happened in Babylon. This is where Babylon gets its name. So this is where Babylon starts. Now, you see Babylon later in that they take the Israelites into captivity. And that's the whole book of Daniel is the, is the captivity of the Israelites by the Babylonians. And Nebuchadnezzar does what? Sets up a statue of himself defying the dream God gave him where Daniel said there would be successive kingdoms after yours, and yours is the head of gold. So what does Nebuchadnezzar do? He sets up a statue to himself like the dream he had, but he makes it all of gold because gold represented him in Babylon. And he wants to defy God and claim himself, and he has people bow down and worship the idol. Again, another picture of the Antichrist. So, Babylon is fallen. This great defiance against God has finally been destroyed is ultimately this angel's 
message. And it's a message, and it's the fight against God in human pride that has existed since Genesis. Then a third angel followed, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out in full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. That is a dark verse with powerful language. I think when you read especially Revelation like 12 through 14, you are looking at imagery that the Holy Spirit granted John because there's an image of a beast. It doesn't talk about a man who comes to power. He gives you this picture of a great beast with ten horns and seven heads and this different large ferocious animals as parts of the body. You're getting a view from heaven what this looks like. God sees the grotesque picture of the Antichrist. God sees the grotesque picture of this world system that is called Babylon. And he sees the wickedness of people, and he's talking about how they will. If you take the mark, you will be drinking of the cup of wrath that's about to come out. This is very powerful imagery and powerful words, and I think it's meant to be that for a reason. God really wanted our attention when we read this book because if you're not a part of the church and you're not out of the way, he wants you to know how dark it's going to be. And also a great message for the church, don't be a part of this. Come with us and join the party early. We can avoid all this darkness. But this is powerful dark language for a reason because this is the darkest time, as Jesus said, in human history. No time of tribulation like this has ever been or ever will be again. So here's the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Then I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, Right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works follow them. So there is some rest and grant, some nice peace to those who follow Christ, as opposed to the cup of wrath that falls on those who don't. And now we've got the next two sections, which are pretty confusing. So then I looked and behold, a white cloud and on the cloud sat one like the son of man, which is a name of given to Jesus. So this is probably Jesus having on his head, a golden crown. The word I believe is diadem, meaning this is a a real royal crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. And another angel came out of the temple with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud. He says, thrust in your sickle and reap, for the time has come for you to reap the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. Now there are two views of this. One is this reaping is Jesus reaping and gathering. So this is the mid-tribulation view or the pre-wrath view of the, of the rapture. This is Jesus reaping the church with his sickle and taking them up to heaven partway through the tribulation period. Um, I don't particularly agree with that view. It is a powerful verse to state that that could be the case. I think if you look at all of the evidence in the Bible as a whole, and you don't isolate this verse by itself, that view starts to crumble, in my humble opinion. I think, especially because the next section you're going to see a sickle again, and it's not going to be a positive judgment, that this is a negative judgment. The sickle typically represents a negative judgment. So this is God reaping the earth, meaning death is coming. Um, in Matthew 24 as well, there's a famous verse that people attribute to the, the rapture where it talks about there'll be two men standing in a field, one shall be taken and the other left. And then there'll be two women grinding at the millstone, one shall be taken, another left. Well, that verse is also isolated and taken out of context to reference the rapture. That is not what it means. That verse is following a description of the flood. 
And right prior to that verse, it talks about people being taken during the flood. And the word taken represents their death from the flood. And so the person who is taken from the field is not headed to heaven. The person who is taken, grinding at the millstone, this is judgment pouring out on them. Um, just like the flood, which that verse is referencing to. So I think same thing here. The sickle is a negative judgment. It represents death. God, Jesus is reaping the earth. We'll see that parallel in the next passage. I could be wrong, but I think that makes more sense. So then another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven, and he also having a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar who had power over fire. And he cried with a loud cry to him who had the sharp sickle saying, thrust in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth for her grapes are fully ripe. So the angel thrust his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trampled outside the city and blood came out of the winepress up to the horse's bridles for 1,600 furlongs. So this is basically the second angel has a sharp sickle. The earth is ripe like grapes and they're put into the winepress. The, the imagery of the winepress is red grapes getting crushed and the stains that are created from red grapes. If you've ever seen, it looks like a blood stain. This is blood. This, and this vision here we'll actually see in the future as we go through other parts of Revelation, something called the Battle of Armageddon. This is like the last fight um, as Jesus returns to the earth. And as Jesus returns to the earth, he basically is like knee deep in blood when the sword comes out of his mouth, because the wrath pours out of his mouth, those who have the mark of the beast, those who have not followed him, die from Jesus's return and his wrath, and he's knee deep in blood. This is that picture. And so I think the sickle represents a negative judgment um, in both cases. Now, I could be wrong, but um, it seems to make sense that consistency um, is typically the pattern in Scripture. So I think the sickle is a negative judgment. Now that is the end of chapter 14. I do want to point this out. This is, we're in the darkness of Revelation. The next few chapters are hard. We did get a glimpse of the peace and relaxation and the rest in chapter 14 of what it's like for those who follow Christ. Once we get past this dark part, we see the ultimate victory of Jesus. Once we get to Revelation 19, we see his return, his victory, and him setting up his millennial kingdom. And so I don't want you to get discouraged as we get through. Because those who follow Christ, as it talks about, have that peace, that relaxation, and that restoration. Now, we think of God and we think of Jesus in our world right now. The gospel is often preached with mercy, compassion, and love being the highlighted characteristics of Jesus, as they should be. But this is the revelation of Jesus Christ, the unveiling of Christ in his fully glorified state. Now, the thing about Jesus is that he is fully God, which means he's not only just love and compassion and mercy, he's also just, he's also righteousness, he's also holy, and he's also wrath. And this is the complete total picture of him. And thankfully, we stand on the side that is not being judged because we have given our faith to Christ. And his, his love for us, he was so willing out of his love for us to take our punishment, a horrible horrible punishment, to be whipped, beaten, mocked, to be there. John writes that everything was created through Christ, that he was there in the beginning. Imagine, just a second with me, Jesus, who was there as the world was being formed, the stars were being formed, the clay was being gathered into Adam and Eve, 
And he loved us so much that he was willing to let everything he created spit on him and rip his beard out, beat him to what would have killed a normal man, and then carry a cross after that whipping and lashing up a mountain to get nailed to it on our behalf. That is love that is unmatched, and his wrath is equal to his love. And this is a great full picture of Jesus. And in that, we can have love and a relationship with him, but also a reverence and an awe of his great and grand power. And he would much prefer to use it for love, mercy, and compassion. But because of his perfection and his godhood, he cannot tolerate sin. And he was willing to take the punishment for it. But if we are not willing to accept it, then he has to do something about it. And so it is up to the church to take as many with us as we can away from this period of darkness and wrath because it's not God's intention to pour out this wrath on a bunch of people. But it is necessary to make sure that the story is complete and that sin does not win. Um, So I just wanted to make that a point because, yes, Jesus is absolutely love, but he is complete and he is a perfect and whole God that deserves our reverence and awe. Let's pray. Father God, I want to thank you for your book, for revealing yourself to us through the scriptures. God, it is amazing to see the total package and picture of who you are. And in the midst of this darkness, in the midst of this portion of history, which you told us in your own words when you were walking on the earth that we should believe in you because this will be a time of trouble like has never been seen or will ever be seen again. And so we want to avoid it. But I'm so thankful that when we see you sitting on your throne room in Revelation chapter 4, you're surrounded by a rainbow reminding us of the promise you made to not judge by flood again. And you are a faithful keeper of your words. And it does show us your love and compassion and mercy, even in the midst of this darkness. God, help us to spread that mercy, compassion, and love throughout the earth and to the people we know who need it. God, we love you. Give us the strength, the power of the Holy Spirit, and the words to say to reach those who we don't want to see go through this dark time. In Jesus' name, amen.